Thank you for that uh, overly kind introduction. Uh, the one part of it that I will echo and agree with it is that there are many, many, many alumni of Darche Noam who are doing incredible things for this country and for our people, both in connection to the current uh, conflict and more, uh, more generally. I'll also uh, sign off on the veracity of the quote about uh, my comparison of Darche Noam to Princeton and Harvard. Uh, the more time goes by, uh, the more I see what's happening uh, in those institutions today, uh, the more I'm happy to uh, repeat what it is that I said then. So my wife Jocelyn and I have been enormously blessed in our lives. And above all, we've been blessed with three wonderful sons and three wonderful daughters. And since October 7th, uh, that has been three soldier sons. Uh, all three of our boys, ages uh, 20 to 34, have uh, spent the bulk of their time in Gaza, to the extent that I've uh, suggested to the two younger ones they should change what's written in their Israeli identification cards. The Instead of the home address in Jerusalem they've been using, they should just write Central Gaza. It would be more accurate. Uh, this has, among other things, created a, a pastime that my wife and I have, which is um, we constantly are looking at the news and we're reading about every single soldier who is killed. And we're reading because we care about them and we're looking for families we know, but we're also reading because we're uh, carrying out the proximity test. How close to our sons are they? And so it was on Motzei Shabbat of November 18th, and Motzei Shabbat, this has a nearly ritualistic element to it. Immediately after Havdalah, you look at your phone, not even time to turn on the computer, you just got to look straight off at the phone to see who's fallen during this uh, these last 24 hours. And so I remember November 18th, going through the list, and usually we see, you know, you, you look at the name, ah, it's a different unit, they're in a different part of Gaza, or that's combat engineering, our sons aren't in combat engineering. Then I hit this name, Shlomo Gurtovnik. So this is a combat medic. I'm like, okay, my youngest son, David, is a combat medic. And then it says he was uh, part of um, the 401st Armored Brigade. Uh, it's like, Okay, my son is also a combat medic in the 401st Armored Brigade, but they have a number of different battalions within that brigade, not that close yet. Then it says 46th Battalion. And then I stop. Because there are only a few combat medics in the 401st uh, Brigade's 46th Battalion, which means that this guy must have been sitting either right next to our son, or at most he was in the next armored personnel carrier, the next Namer over. So we knew our son was fine, Baruch Hashem, because we hadn't heard otherwise, and the army's good about letting people know. Uh, but we knew that he wasn't fine, because emotionally he must have been struck by this. So we made a few phone calls, checked in with some people we knew, and discovered that indeed... Uh, this Shlomo Gortovnik was quite close to our son. Our son is the, the called Choged. He's the uh, co-leader of the medical team within this tank battalion. So Shlomo Gortovnik was one of his guys. 
and they worked together very closely. So we got the details about the funeral, which was going to be the next day, because we knew our son David would want to be there, and we knew that with everything that was going on, his commander couldn't possibly let him be there, but we wanted to have him represented. So we found ourselves in Modi'in uh, on an absolutely pouring day, wanting to make sure there was an appropriate number of people there, appropriately large. There was nothing to worry about. The cemetery was absolutely packed. You actually couldn't count the number of people because it was just wall-to-wall, or um, place-to-place umbrellas. And it was pouring. And the eulogies began, and you could occasionally hear what was being said, but most of the time all you could hear was the pounding of the rain on hundreds of umbrellas. And then Father Alex Kortovnik got up to speak. And of course the whole time we're thinking, there but for the grace of God go I. This could easily have been me up there speaking, and Alex Kortovnik under an umbrella listening to what I was saying, and as I'm up there, or as I'm you know, standing with my umbrella, I'm thinking, what does a grieving father possibly say in these circumstances? Then, as if from above some help were given, the rain stops. And you can hear everything. And Alex Kortovnik said as follows. He said it in Russian-accented but very nice Hebrew, I'll translate it in non-Russian accented, hopefully okay, English. My dear son Shlomo, your great-grandfather, who was named Shlomo Gortavnik, fell in battle in the Second World War, fighting Nazis. Eighty years later, you fell in battle in Operation Swords of Iron, fighting Nazis. My heart stopped. For my entire adult life, I have rejected, not just intellectually, but emotionally, viscerally, every comparison I've ever heard between anything else in the world before the Nazis or after, and what happened in the Holocaust. And I almost got angry. Except you can't get angry at a grieving father burying his son. And I actually then stopped and said, well, what if he's right? What if this time... It's different from every other time. What if this time the comparison is an apt one? Not a perfect one, but good enough so that you could actually learn from one case to the other. And I had that thought in the back of my mind, and occasionally would develop one or another part of it as I noticed similarities. And then Rav Karlinsky asked me if I'd be willing to speak, and I, of course, said yes. And we discussed the subject, and he said, well, it seems like the apt thing to do is to talk about some element of the comparison between uh, what happened in the Holocaust and what happened on 10-7. I said, yes, that's it. That's what I'll do. We worked out what the topic is, and what you're hearing is my first real attempt in a thought-out manner to try to explain the link between these events. What I want to do is three things. I'm going to begin by laying out why, despite a lifetime of my saying one couldn't compare and it's wrong to compare and it's intellectually not right to compare and it does a disservice to the Holocaust victims to compare and all of those things, the first thing I want to do is make the case briefly for why these are in many ways comparable events. Second thing is, 
I want to talk about a few things that you can learn from 10-7, from October 7th, about the Holocaust. And then the third and final thing I want to do is to speak about a few things that you can learn from, or that all of us can learn from the Holocaust about 10-7, and especially about what follows from it and what we need to be doing now. So I'm going to begin with half a dozen points of comparison and then note a few differences. Uh, first thing is the intent of 10-7 was absolutely genocidal. Right? You can read about it in the Hamas charter. You can understand it from the plans that have been found and revealed about how far these Hamas so-called fighters, terrorists, um, would have gone had they not been stopped by Israeli civilians, police, and soldiers. And you can hear it most clearly when one spokesperson after another of Hamas says, our goal is to do 10-7 time after time after time. There's no mistaking it. Yes, there is always 10-7 denialism, and it has been denied in this case as well, but a fair-minded person looking at the evidence has to see here that just as the Nazis did everything they could to destroy the Jews throughout all parts of the world that they could get to, that was the intent of the masterminds and the practitioners of 10-7. Uh, number two, no distinguishing soldiers and civilians, men, women, elderly, young, sick, uh, didn't make any difference. Just as the Nazis were, um, they were against discrimination. They did not favor or disfavor any particular Jewish group. They sought to murder them all. Hamas, we saw in this case, did exactly that. Third thing is that there was, just like the Nazis were quite proud of what they did, and if you read various memoirs or historical works based on conversations with Nazis, you see this. So it's particularly uh, notable in Adolf Eichmann, who, was going to, who said that he was going to go to his grave laughing but proud that he had murdered millions of Jews. And the conversation I can't get out of my head, and I assume all of you have heard it, but it's worth almost committing it to memory. Right? There's a, uh, a terrorist from uh, Hamas, I think he was part of the uh, Al-Nukhba forces, their so-called elite units, who calls his parents in the middle of everything. Right? He takes the time out, risking his life when he should have been, from a rational point of view, um, going back to Gaza, or if he wants to do as much damage as possible, killing uh, as many Jews as he can, but he takes the time to call his parents. Uh, gets his mother and father on the phone, and he says to them, I'm a hero. Your son is a hero. Check your WhatsApp, because he's been telling them, look at the pictures I'm sending you. He's, he's using the phone of an Israeli woman he had just murdered. He sent his parents pictures of his murders, of his victims, and he wants his parents to see it. And he says, I killed them. I killed at least 10 Jews with my bare hands. By the way, if you speak to journalists who watched the full version film of the atrocities, the 44-minute version, the thing they say sticks out most in their minds was not this or that horrific picture, but this person with so much joy and so much pride, he had done something about which his parents could cavell. He had murdered at least 10 Jews with his bare hands. So there's that sense of pride which the Nazis also had. Um, 
there's the extremeness of the cruelty. And I have to say, I can understand a lot of human emotions. I can understand the, I can understand jealousy. I can understand a person being so angry that he would kill. I can understand all kinds of elements of depravity. I cannot understand a human being wanting to cause suffering to a fellow human being. And even less can I understand someone who is then happy about it in a way that is sickly radiant. But when you read descriptions of what the Nazis did, you get the sense that they invested their creativity, their souls, in causing as much pain as possible and reveling in it, really enjoying it. And the same thing is true when you watch the videos. Again, this is what's stuck in people's minds. It's not so much the cruel acts that are being carried out by these Hamas terrorists, but the radiance, the sense that they have waited their whole lives for this moment, that they are in their version of Gan Eden. They are in paradise. If they could do anything they wanted to do in their lives, they were doing that thing. They were torturing Jews. And we know that they tortured people before they were killed and while they were being assaulted. And they literally tortured and mutilated after people were killed. And so, another point of comparison. Apart from the torture, there was also humiliating people. Just wanting to make it utterly clear that you are the lowest of the low and I'm above you and I'm stepping on you and I can make you do anything I want and um, you need to feel incredibly low and everybody watching you needs to feel incredibly low compared to me. There are many stories and pictures of the Nazis right, stepping with a jackboot on an elderly Jewish man with a, with a beard and a yarmulke and the traditional garb wanting everybody in the street to see they're stepping on his head, they're stepping on his neck. I couldn't really understand those, how that could be, until I saw some of the things that were done on 10-7. Uh, and the final point of comparison, of similarity, is in certain respects, the reaction of the world. And I stress in certain respects. But the indifference on the part of shockingly large numbers of people, the way others found a path to identifying somehow. I don't agree with the Hamas atrocities, but they were expressing their freedom. They were expressing their frustration. We can understand where they're coming from. We have to see it in context. Reminds us of some of the things, or should remind us of some of the things that we've read and heard about uh, world reactions to the Holocaust. Lots of indifference, lots of not being willing to make this a priority, and even... In some cases, understanding the Germans' motivations given all their strategic challenges they had and given what Jews might have done to them and so on and so on. So there are enough uh, similarities, and I could go on and on, to make me think that Alex Gotovnik was right and his son Shlomo really had died fighting Nazis. Now, lest anyone go out of here thinking that I just said these are events that are nearly identical, there are obviously enormous differences, right? In terms of scale, all of the all of the Jews who were murdered on 10-7 and all who have been killed since then in Israel doesn't begin to approach what was done, the number of murders in Auschwitz alone by lunchtime on a day during that peak period in the summer of 1942. And it's also the case, the Germans actually could commit genocide. Right? They killed six million Jews and had events been different, had a few decisions gone differently, that number could have been much larger. It could have come close to being the population of Jews in the world, perhaps outside of North America, 
And even then, you never know what could have happened had uh, history gone differently. Hamas at no point had anything like the capability to act on its genocidal intent, so that is a difference, of course. Uh, I'll add that in this case, Israel has had one great ally. Other allies of significance, but one great ally, which was not the case in the Holocaust. In the Holocaust, we had various people saying this is too bad and we'd like to do something and perhaps we can help and maybe we can persuade some other country to take in refugees or maybe down the road we'll do something to bomb a railway track or something. But uh, from 10-7, from the moment this began through today, uh, President Joe Biden has been I believe spectacular. I make a point of not speaking about American politics. I retain American citizenship, but I'm principally an Israeli citizen. And from the day that I first served in the Israeli army, I don't vote in American elections. And I took upon myself a near vow, not a halachic one, but a near vow of not speaking about American politics. But this is above and beyond. And at every opportunity I have, I say President Biden has been absolutely extraordinarily, extraordinary, well beyond anything that could have been imagined. And at least... If you stop this show as of now, that is the case. And that's very different from the Holocaust. Uh, but most important, we have a country and we have an IDF. Right? We have an Israeli army. That's the biggest difference. Right? The blood of Jews can no longer be spelt, spilt freely. So there are plenty of differences, but I think it's the similarities that we ought to learn from. It's easy to say, well, those things are different, so I'm not going to uh, learn one from the other. But that limits us intellectually and emotionally and even practically. So what I now want to do is I want to talk a little bit about what we can learn from uh, 10-7, the atrocities of that day, and what's followed it uh, about the Holocaust. And I want to suggest three things, which is by no means an exhaustive list. The first of them, I can actually speak about it very briefly, whereas I was planning to go on for longer because Rav Karlinsky said it far better than I could, the denialism. The denialism has been, for me, eye-opening. I mean, I never could quite understand Holocaust denialism, but I could at least, if you see something for enough years and you hear it for long enough, you can say, I understand how that's happening, even though it's horrific, and we need to fight it. But what we've learned in this case is that denialism will be with us always. There is no such thing as a final victory in which we will quiet all the denialists because we will have brought not this much proof and not this much proof and not this much proof, but all of the proof in the world that there was a Holocaust, there are still going to be deniers. And you see that today because no amount of contemporary evidence on video and audio and people proudly saying what they did and the victims testifying and it's all recorded in ways that are absolutely clear. But those who choose to deny, especially those who choose to deny the atrocities committed against Jews, will find a way to do it, which means that what what Chappelle's Darchenom is doing in terms of Holocaust education, symbolized by what we're speaking about today, but more generally true throughout the year and throughout the years, is of even greater importance than I had ever assigned it in the past, and I know that now, today, with absolute clarity. So that's the first thing, but Rav Karlinsky said it far better. Second thing is, it's an intellectual lesson. One of, the, one of the disputes among scholars was to what extent were ordinary Germans, and that's the term that's used, 
to what extent were they implicated in the Holocaust? Was this mostly the Nazi movement, which was large and had lots of troops, but wasn't the majority in Germany? Uh, was it just that group, or did ordinary Germans back this? And of course, the only way you can really know is using the available evidence from the archives and from eyewitness testimony, testimonies and lists of soldiers and that kind of thing. But you can sometimes learn from other cases. And what we've learned from this case is that while the worst of the atrocities were committed by Hamas fighters, it is also true that uh, large numbers of what one could call ordinary Palestinians joined in. And I'm not implicating all Palestinians, and I'm not talking, I'm not saying every Palestinian thinks or does such and such things, but we also need to look at what happened. And uh, the picture most etched in my mind is this elderly gentleman on, with I think two crutches, walking into Gaza, he was actually walking out of, from Gaza into Kibbutz Be'eri to join in the looting. And that picture sticks in my mind. But that's anecdotal, you could say. Look at the survey research data. Right? A very strong majority of Palestinians supported, after the fact, what had been done on October 7th. And again, I'm not speaking about everybody, but we're seeing in the 21st century, which is supposed to be an even more civilized, more moral era than the middle of the 20th century, that a people at least in very large numbers, is capable of identifying with acts that are genocidal in intent and unspeakably barbaric and cruel in their content. And it makes me think, you know, when I question whether ordinary Germans got involved in the Holocaust to a significant extent, this makes me think, well, ordinary Palestinians in large numbers at least identified with it. Lots of them were out celebrating Many took part and actually were responsible for some of the most awful things that happened on October 7th. So it tells us something intellectually, but I have to say for me the most important thing is emotionally how 10-7 enabled me to understand the Holocaust uh, better. And I don't think I'm an especially callous person, and I don't think I'm an especially uncaring person, and I've spent a lot of time reading about the Holocaust and going to Yad Vashem on many occasions and other Holocaust museums in Poland and the death camps. But there was always a certain distance between me and what had happened. And even when I heard testimony from survivors, right, the Holocaust ended two decades before I was born. And there are distant members of my family who had been killed, distant in the sense I never met them and never heard much about them. Um, but I, could, I couldn't quite grasp it even when I was in Poland, even at the death camps, I didn't feel anything like the pain of the empathy that I thought I should. And then came 10-7. And when something like this happens, right, so one of our students at Shalem College was killed fighting on the first day. He went as a volunteer to try to save civilians. And children of friends of ours have been murdered. And I've been going to funerals and I've been going to shivas and I've been looking at videos and I've been reading about it and utterly focused on it. And this week, in part in preparation for being here, on Tuesday I went to the three places of the most horrific massacres, uh, Kibbutz Be'eri, Kibbutz Kfar Aza, and the site of the Nova festival, which turned into the Nova tragedy. 
And in those places, especially in the kibbutzim, where I was looking at these burnt houses and seeing the remains of people's lives, and in each case meeting with survivors of these tragedies, people whose family members had been killed, kidnapped, I finally think I understood at least a little bit better what happened in the Holocaust, because I'm, I'm looking out at this scene of destruction, and I'm actually just like uncontrollably emotional, and I'm flashing back to 80 years ago as well. Because when you see it happen to people who you know, and when you see it happen in your time, and it's very fresh, it's very real, you're not, you're not reading something in a history book or hearing from a survivor talking about memories from decades earlier. You're actually in real time experiencing the pain of a friend watching um, his close friend at a funeral or at a shiva. And when it's happening about you, then you can understand. And now I have a better understanding for what people like the Chappelles went through and for what their contemporaries went through. And so to me, the biggest takeaway from 10-7 in terms of how I see the Holocaust isn't something intellectually that I know today that I didn't know on October 6th, but it's an ability to identify more strongly with the victims and with the survivors and to feel at least some fraction of a fraction of the kind of incredible pain that they must have gone through. Final thing that I want to talk about is what we can learn from the Holocaust about 10-7. And again, there's much that could be said, but I'm going to limit myself to three lessons. First one is, don't underestimate the ability of human beings to be unspeakably cruel to one another. And in particular, don't underestimate the ability of anti-Semites to hate Jews and to act on that hatred in the harshest and most horrific ways. A person might have thought, after the first few weeks of the Holocaust, that German anger is going to be spent, or the world is going to stop them, or uh, they won't be able to find troops who are willing to just murder day after day after day, and they'll be resigning en masse, and they're going to have to stop this. And what we see in the Holocaust is nothing internal stopped the Germans and their many collaborators and allies from murdering. It was only when they were stopped by greater outside forces that the Holocaust ended. We should not underestimate the extent of the hatred aimed at Jews in general and Israelis in particular on the part of Hamas and those who support them. And anybody who's thinking, well, they did it once, but they're not going to try to do it again, or a conscience is going to rise up where they're going to hear condemnations in the world and they're going to stop... Um, is completely misunderstanding what's happening now and can only do that if you completely misunderstand what happened in the Holocaust. There is, from a practical point of view, an infinite amount of hatred aimed at us from at least significant portions of Hamas's uh, terrorists, their fighters, their their so-called militants. And everything we do should be based on the understanding that they will that they will not be limited by their conscience, they will not be limited by second thoughts, they will not be limited by how they see themselves as being perceived. They will go as far as they can go in doing one October 7th after another October 7th after another, and we need to understand that and internalize it. That's the first thing. 
The second thing is, at the end of the day, am levadad yishkon. Right? We are a people that dwells alone. And I don't mean to say we should not work with our allies, and I said very fine things, which I will not take back at this stage, about President Biden and his support for Israel. But in the Holocaust, what you see with absolute clarity is we were alone. Was there sympathy? Yes. Were there some set of people who tried to do things for us? Yes. Were the Jews of Europe left on their own against the Nazis and their collaborators to be tortured and murdered? The answer is yes. And we need to be prepared at some stage in this conflict, whether with Hamas, with Hamas and Hezbollah, with Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran, to be a nation dwelling on its own. It's great to be loved. It's great to have allies. It's great to hear all the things that we were hearing a lot of at the beginning of the war in support of us, and over time those things are diminishing. But we should all be preparing ourselves for what happens when only we realize what needs to be done, and even our closest allies aren't prepared to back us and to do the things that they need to do, and we all need to be getting ourselves ready for that day. I'm not saying it will necessarily come, Bezrat Hashem and Bezrat Wisdom on the part of our government and governments in other countries. Maybe we'll never get there, but we can't act as if we are always going to have allies. We have to be ready to go completely on our own. And the third and final thing that we take away from the Holocaust and can learn about 10-7 is very simple. Never again. Right? The Holocaust shows us what happens when we don't have a state, when we don't have an army. And the single most important lesson for us to learn is that we are responsible for never again, not just, in the, not just on some simple level of we have to teach our children, we have to teach other people, and we have to get the message out, but literally it is within the state of Israel, and in particular the army, that never again is finding its greatest and clearest meaning. And I actually uh, heard uh, something from Rabbi, Rabbi Elliot Kosgrove of New York that really struck me. Listen to it uh, in a podcast, it was a recording of something he said uh, less than a week after 10-7. Uh, very powerful, powerful set of remarks, and he said as follows. Deny my right to exist, I have nothing to say to you. The IDF speaks for me and for all of Israel. And I listened to that and thought, that's exactly right. When you look at the IDF, they're speaking for you and for all of Israel. Because at some points, in some arguments, in some disputes, our ability to manage them through our voices and our pens fades into nothingness, and the IDF speaks for all of us. And I think that tells us something. Looking at the Holocaust which was the ultimate example of Jewish powerlessness, should inform the way that we view the Israeli army. And I don't mean to say that every soldier is a prince or an angel, and I don't mean to say that the army does everything right. Those things can't be true, but when we look at the army, I think we need to be guided by the lessons of the Holocaust and the lessons of today. Uh, so there is this tradition that um, maybe, I mean, more than just a tradition that you're supposed to, every Jew should view himself as if he himself 
as if she herself went out of Egypt. We're supposed to do that on Passover, and I can say that uh, I just turned 60 this week, so I've been going to seders and remembering something about them for the last 55 years, and I would say I'm 0 for 55 you know, on this particular one. I can never, I, I try, I'm like trying to picture myself in Egypt, and I can't do it. The one thing like this that I've been able to do until now, and I don't, I have no explanation for why, but during the week when a Chatan and Kalar are getting married, I had been told, I think in my yeshiva itself, that you should view them as if the Chatan and Kalar are a king and a queen. And I actually do that. It's involuntary. I don't have to think about it. Like when I feel like, wow, this Kala is speaking to me, this Chatan is speaking to me, and I'm like just a lowly civilian citizen, and this is a king and queen. I'm now doing the same thing with the soldiers. Every time I see a soldier who is a combat soldier, who's risking his life for me and you and you and you and every one of us, I'm looking at a Maccabee. I'm looking at a Gibor. I'm looking at a hero. I mean, this is not something intellectual. This is not based on having read books on it. I just, I look at them and that's what I see. And I think one of the lessons for me of the, of the Holocaust is when you can do the alternative, when you have soldiers who are the antithesis of Jewish powerlessness, you should see them as heroes. You should look at them with a sense of awe. You should be filled with a level of hakarat tov that you are literally unable to express it should be so overflowing. Uh, and you should do whatever you can to help them. If they need rides, you drive them. If they need food, you feed them. If they need gear, you <coughs> buy it for them. If it's in America, you bring it over. You do whatever you have to do. If they need to be defended on the international stage or elsewhere, you're out there defending them. They are the front lines. And everybody who is not out there in the front lines, we're all, in the OREF, we're all in the background, and we should do what we can to support them. Just to wrap up, and might we, will we have a few minutes for questions? Great. So, we're living in a historic moment. Now, the truth is, we're always living in a historic moment. And if you're living in Israel, you're living in a triply historic moment. It's historic... For the world, it's historic. For the Jews today, it's historic for our ancient people. But I usually walk around the world not feeling very historic. I feel kind of regular. I feel kind of like day-to-day, like a normal person in a normal city, getting angry at traffic and frustrated when my computer doesn't work and annoyed if the person at the store I'm shopping at is insufficiently uh, helpful to me. Not that that's ever happened. That was a hypothetical example, obviously. In fact, all of them were hypothetical. But I'm living in normal time. And right now we're living in a period that is so pregnant with historical meaning that anyone of any sensitivity can feel it. Right? It's, it's a moment unlike anything that I've experienced in my life. And it's in moments like these that one should not only feel in your gut what's going on, but learn everything you can. This is the moment when you actually can understand the Holocaust better than you could five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago, even though we were closer in time to the Holocaust. Use it to the full extent because that knowledge is going to help you understand not just the Holocaust, but Jewish history and Jewish destiny. At the same time, there are very few things that prepare us to understand what's going on around us because most of us have never met 
anyone of the kind who would call his mother and father and say, you should be proud of me, I killed at least ten Jews with my bare hands. So if we want to understand people like that, because we have to understand them, because we're in a world where we have to deal with them, you can read about them in literature, but you might in the back of your mind say, well, it's this great literature and I'm learning about people who are depraved, but they didn't actually exist. They were brought to life by the novelist. But now you can actually understand the depravity we're facing, the cruelty we're facing, the genocidal intent and the glee behind it by studying the Holocaust, which gives yet another reason to learn more about the Holocaust and yet another reason to be appreciative of David and Fela Chappelle and everything they've done for this institution, including everything they've done to make sure that Holocaust education is a part of it. So I want to thank all of you for this opportunity, especially Rav Karlinsky, to speak about a subject that is so close to my heart and I think so close to all of our hearts. And we have about 10 minutes and I'd love to uh, take questions or comments. My only rule is um, nobody gets more than one question other than a Kodesh Baruch Hu, And if he wants to ask more than one, that's fine. Everybody else, yet one question. So One other rule. It's got to end with a question mark. Ah, yes, that is definitely inherent in its questioning nature. So who, who wants to start us? I'm sure there will be people with something to say. Yes? Um, how do we deal with what may not be specifically like 10-7 denial, but almost like, because, I'm sorry, I'm trying to put it into words, like, we see a lot of times that people will, well, they won't deny 10-7 directly, not even like they'll justify it or the with the past seventy five years or they'll justify it with what happened afterwards. Is that is that something that we saw with the Holocaust? Uh, um, how do we deal with it? So um, denialism is a broader phenomenon than we think just based on the term. Denialism isn't doesn't just mean people who say there weren't six million Jews who were killed, there weren't any ovens, uh, these things didn't happen. Denialism is also denying the horrificness of an event by placing it in context or by justifying it. And you see plenty of that in the case of the Holocaust. There are people who talk about how terrible the Jews actually were for the Germans and how they undermined the German society and they undermined German politics and it was the Jews, after all, who were responsible for the Weimar Republic and the separate peace made at the end of uh, the peace made made at the end of World War One, and the list goes on and on. Um, it is the nature of deniers not just to stick to saying the facts you claim are wrong, but to justify things. And so, to me at least, that is part and parcel of what the, of, of what one should expect. You could say that it's a softer form, because at least they're admitting what happened, but in a sense it's much worse, because it's hard to deny the facts. So the people who justify it in context say, you know what, all of you out there who agree that this happened, I can still give you a way to look at it that will enable you to sympathize with the, uh, with the side that committed the atrocities, and look skeptically, if not... Um, in a hostile and even angry way at the side that was victimized. So I would say that the worst part of denialism is not the people who claim that it didn't happen. After all, we could argue with them and some people will be persuaded by our documented facts. But the people who somehow twist the morality of it, 
twist the historical interpretation uh, and try to undermine any sense of moral clarity by saying, I grant you that that happened, let me tell you why it was okay. That's the worst form of Holocaust denial, and it's the worst form of 10-7 denial. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. You want to ask something? So, a woman over there. Yes. Yes. Um, so, um, what's your opinion about like the um, self-haters? Why do you think it's such like a prevalent phenomenon? Jews, Jews, that, Jews are supporting Hamas. Jews who are supporting Hamas. Or, or, or you know, um, Jews who are anti-Israel. Well, Jews supporting Hamas demonstrations. Yeah. So. I try not to duck questions, and I try not to answer questions that I don't have a lot to say about, and we try to find the, the line between those. Jews who are against the existence of Israel, I can understand that. I can understand it when those Jews are basing themselves on, um, on the Talmud and on our tradition that says that uh, we shouldn't have forced the creation of this state. I can understand it even if I disagree with them. And I can understand people who are anti-nationalists, who are universalists, and who believe that all uh, that all national identities are ultimately destructive to mankind because we need to see each other as connected to other people rather, as, rather than being separate nations and tribes. So I don't have an emotional reaction against Jews who say, I think the world would be better off if Israel hadn't come into existence, and we should try to find some equitable way to make it not a nation-state. I disagree with them completely. I have, uh, right, I, I, have I, I, act, I spend the better part of my waking hours being on the absolute opposite side, but I'm not going to denounce them in harsh moral terms. A Jew who can say anything positive about 10-7 or Hamas as an organization today, I, I throw up my hands. I cannot understand it. They are defending gang rape and torturing and um, horrific oppression and mutilation and a set of things. And there is no way, apropos of the earlier question, to deny that out of existence or to morally think that as legitimate. No, even if I accepted their understanding of what the Jews have done to them historically, which I absolutely do not accept, but even if I accepted it, there are things that can't be justified. So... I can't explain it. I cannot explain how a person... I can't explain how any person... Just like I can't understand cruelty, I can't, exp I can't explain how any person could be supportive of what Hamas did. Kalvachomer a fortiori. Even more so, I cannot understand how a Jewish person could look at Hamas and say good things. So I, I, I don't get it. Uh, and Bezrat Hashem, with God's help, that kind of thinking will over time disappear in the world because there's nothing good about it. One last question. Actually, I had a question, but now I realize it's still in formation. Uh, and as I long as there's only one of them and has a question yeah, mark, you're okay. I can with a question mark, so would it be okay if I send you an email with my question? Uh, yes. You want to share it? I, I want to ask it the best okay. version of it. So, so can we, yeah, do, yeah. does that mean we have time for maybe, one more maybe, maybe one more non-email question? One question. question. But, okay. Go ahead. Okay, so you mentioned... Um, about seeing as the, uh, the the soldier as, as the Maccabee and, and et cetera, and how people are doing a different vote to Shem, whether it's in Israel, in the States, there's lots of uh, opportunities for help. Uh, looking at it from someone who's in the yeshiva, obviously, you know, there's extended learning to him, like many people are saying, 
uh, which is certainly good, but is there something that you would recommend or that you take you know take on as far as what does what does Lotus Hashem's post ten seven look like from a um like Torah uh, point of view? So the most important part of my answer is I would defer to the Rosh Yeshiva on that subject. It's not mine to define what is the proper Avodah Hashem for somebody in this uh, in this yeshiva. I'll say a couple of things, though. Uh, the first one is part of what terrorists do is they try to stop us from leading the lives that we want to lead and building the institutions and the families that we want to build. And one of the most important things you can do if you're not actually in the army is lead your life as well as you can possibly lead your life. If you're here for the year or for months or for many years learning, learn more. They're trying to, trust me, the Nuhba, so-called elite forces within Hamas, they would want you not to learn at all. They'd also want you to be dead. But uh, if already... You're alive, they want you not to be learning. And if you have the opportunity, if you were going to be learning only 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day, up the numbers. Right? That's how you respond when somebody says, you can't have your way of life. I hate you and I hate your way of life. Your answer is, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing is, Tfilah's good. And I know there is, a, there is an argument of uh, whether petitionary prayer asking Kodesh Baruch Hu for things and saying psalms, saying Tehillim, is that like, does that work? Does it not work? Should we do those kinds of things? Um, I'm a big fan of petitionary prayer. And I'm not great at Kavan, I'm not great at like really focusing on my prayer, but I have to say, since 10-7, I have a list of things that I want from Kodesh Baruch Hu. Protecting my three sons and destroying Hamas is just the very beginning of that list. And when I'm praying, I'm thinking about those Things and it's a good opportunity not only to pray more and say psalms more, but to improve your prayer and improve your connection to a Kodesh Baruch Hu because we feel that need and we feel that link. The third thing is, and I don't want to cut into anybody's limut Torah or be responsible for bittul Torah, but wherever you are, there are things that you can do that are practical. You can help soldiers. You can. Uh, help people who have, you can do volunteer work if your Rosh Yeshiva think it's a, thinks that that is an okay idea to, uh, to sub for farmers whose crops are otherwise going to, uh, uh, going to be destroyed for lack, or going to just uh, rot for lack of being harvested. Uh, there are many practical things you can do. I'm not an advocate of we all drop our lives and no one learns and we just work with our hands or join the army tomorrow morning. Um, big fan of people being in the army and not just my boys. But if you're in yeshiva and you're supposed to be learning, you should learn, you should pray, uh, and you should figure out a way that you can do things. That's the part of the beauty in its own sad and cruel way of this war is everybody can be part of the front lines. Everybody can be involved. And unless there are very particular reasons for an individual or for people in a certain institution you can figure out how can I help in concrete ways. And that's, I think, as much as I can say on that. We're out of time, and I just wanted to thank all of you again for this opportunity.